This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd start to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. On February 6th, 1963, Robert McNamara, the United States Secretary of Defense, held a nationally televised press conference in the White House. After months of near-constant coverage of the threat that the Soviet Union and its ally, Cuba, posed to the people of the United States, McNamara now had the much more refreshing job of letting the country know that they could rest easy. Just five months after the Cuban Missile Crisis, McNamara was happy to report that the danger had passed. This was actually the first time the United States government had publicly acknowledged that there were even missiles in Cuba. But McNamara assured the gathered reporters and the country that the missiles had all been dismantled. Well, McNamara had expected the press interest to be strong, and he had prepared his answers thoroughly. But one man caught him off guard. Paul Scott, a Washington, D.C.-based reporter, had a number of questions for McNamara about the placement of the Cuban missiles that had reportedly been removed. He had detailed questions about missile locations and density. In fact, he knew specific facts about the whole affair that McNamara had only made public minutes before. As McNamara left and the conference carried on with a routine intelligence brief, his mind was already racing. When he returned to his office, he started making calls to his own staff and to his colleagues in the FBI and the CIA. His message was brief and blunt. Someone needed to keep an eye on Paul Scott. 
Nearly 50 years later, declassified documents would indicate that this was likely the moment when Operation Mockingbird was born. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a ParCast original. Every Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to ParCast.com merch for more information. You can listen to previous episodes of Conspiracy Theories, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify and anywhere you listen to podcasts. This is our second and final episode on Operation Mockingbird, an alleged program run by the Central Intelligence Agency through the 1950s, 1960s, and early 1970s that formed a large network of American and foreign journalists to publish propaganda with the intent of turning global sentiment against communist Russia. The CIA definitely used journalists as assets during the Cold War, though the extent to which they did is a little murky. For decades, it's been alleged that a wide range of CIA operations that made use of journalists for intelligence-gathering purposes were classified under the codename Operation Mockingbird. In the fallout of the Watergate scandal, a number of CIA black ops programs were exposed to the public but none of the declassified reports mentioned an Operation Mockingbird. This conspiracy theory is a little different from the ones we've discussed in other episodes. We're not looking to determine whether or not the Central Intelligence Agency used journalists in some capacity to further its goals during the early decades of the Cold War. That almost certainly happened, as did a number of other ethically dubious operations that the CIA was accused of. The question we're looking into in this episode is, what was Operation Mockingbird? Our first theory is the commonly accepted one about this subject. Operation Mockingbird was the name of a widespread, decades-long series of initiatives to empower journalists to promote the CIA's anti-communist agenda abroad and in America. Our second theory is that Operation Mockingbird was actually Project Mockingbird, a small surveillance operation conducted in the early summer of 1963. In the early 1960s, Washington-based journalists Paul Scott and Robert Allen published a number of articles in their column, The Allen-Scott Report, that tended to cite classified material. According to this theory, Mockingbird was the operation to spy on those two men and find out who their sources were. These two theories are the main conflicting points of view when it comes to this story, but to wrap things up, we'll also explore a third minor theory. The exposure of Mockingbird and other CIA operations like it 
crippled the agency's intelligence-gathering capabilities for decades to come. After its formation in 1947, the Central Intelligence Agency began to define the many fronts from which it would combat the spread of communism by the USSR. This manifested itself in a number of clandestine operations, including the use of student organizations to infiltrate, spy on, and manipulate communist countries. In our last episode, we discussed how, in 1967, it was revealed that the CIA had for more than a decade used the National Student Association as a front, funneling money into the organization as a way to access foreign communist countries. The expose led to a cascade of similar revelations that laid bare the scope of the CIA's non-government front operations. They had their hands in everything from social justice organizations to church groups. What should be noted here is that the revelations coming out of the 1967 article did not specifically link the CIA to journalists. In fact, the real bombshell on that subject didn't come out for another decade. 1974 saw the Watergate scandal conclude with Richard Nixon's resignation from the presidency. In the fallout, Congress began investigating the CIA and whether or not it had abused its power to run interference for Nixon. The resulting Church Report, a compilation of over a year of testimony and hearings, revealed to Congress the infamous Family Jewels, a series of black ops and illegal operations that the CIA had undertaken. Well, the Family Jewels included failed assassination attempts on foreign citizens and leaders, including Cuban dictator Fidel Castro. It also featured a number of controversial ops in which CIA operatives illegally read the mail of U.S. citizens and conducted dangerous experiments with psychotropic drugs through the MKUltra program. Well, much of the report on the family jewels was classified, and notably, there was no mention of an Operation Mockingbird in the report. What's more, the bulk of what we know about how exactly the CIA used journalists as intelligence assets didn't come to light until a year after the Church Report was published. One of the biggest sources that directly outlines the CIA's network of journalists came out in 1977. Carl Bernstein, the same reporter who, with Bob Woodward, published some of the earliest articles on the Watergate scandal, wrote a piece for Rolling Stone magazine called The CIA and the Media. The piece starts off with quite the bombshell. Quote, in 1953, Joseph Alsup, one of America's leading syndicated columnists, went to the Philippines to cover an election. He did not go because he was asked to do so by his syndicate. He did not go because he was asked to do so by the newspapers that printed his column. He went at the request of the CIA. Now, Joseph Alsup was an author, former war correspondent, and influential reporter. He was a known public figure, and yet he was working for the CIA. In last week's episode, we talked about how the agency's relationship with the National Student Association hinged on using students to interact with countries that the agency itself couldn't publicly do business with. Even after the 1967 expose ended the NSA operation, 
the CIA still carried out this kind of work only with journalists instead of students. They were, as Bernstein calls them, ambassadors without portfolio. The article even clarified that none of these journalists were working independently. The CIA had the permission and the cooperation of the reporter's employers. This included, but wasn't limited to, the New York Times, the Columbia Broadcasting System, Newsweek, and the Miami Herald. This was a program that dated back to at least 1953, just six years after the CIA had been established. Recall from our last episode that one of President Truman's goals when establishing the CIA was to maintain the intelligence network of the OSS. That network included dealings with American journalists who had been embedded with combat outfits during World War II. After the OSS was folded into the CIA, the director of the CIA, Alan Dulles, oversaw a series of informal relationships between agency operatives and working journalists. Bernstein lays out that, at the height of its unchecked power, the Central Intelligence Agency had upwards of 400 American journalists working with them. They performed a range of tasks, from giving simple briefs on what they saw when they traveled abroad to acting as go-betweens for the agency and operatives in foreign countries. These journalists would return from stints overseas and literally turn over any notes or pictures they had taken abroad for the CIA to make records of. They would sometimes act as intermediaries, meeting with officers of foreign governments behind the U.S. government's back and relaying messages to and from their CIA contacts. Most damningly, they would sometimes give the CIA approval over the stories they wrote, or they would publish the stories given to them by CIA operatives sight unseen. This was all being done with the full cooperation of the media outlets that employed these journalists. As was ultimately proven to be the case with the NSA, the CIA infiltrated these outlets by dealing directly with the people in charge. To the reporters and the moguls who allowed this to happen, this wasn't an abandonment of journalistic ethics. This was doing one's patriotic duty to defend America from the blight of communism. As Joseph also put it when asked about the program, I'm proud they asked me and proud to have done it. During the Church Committee hearing in 1975, the presiding senators repeatedly probed into the matter of the CIA's relationship with journalists. But at the request of the then director of the CIA, George H.W. Bush, the Church Committee didn't look into the matter as thoroughly as they did other operations, and they severely redacted those parts of their report. In exchange, George Bush announced in February of 1976 that the CIA was formally, officially done with using journalists as assets. I don't suppose he offered up any proof to back up his claim. He did not. It appears his word was good enough. Of course, the most damning thing about this whole affair is, after the church committee's reports, no one actually went to jail or was even apparently punished for this gross misuse of journalists. And more relevant to this theory, not once in Bernstein's 25,000-word piece does he mention Operation Mockingbird. 
To that end, the theory that Operation Mockingbird was a clandestine, long-lasting operation in which the CIA made use of journalists to gather intelligence on foreign countries gets a middle-of-the-road 5 out of 10 on the believability scale. While this operation ostensibly did happen, it seems unlikely that it was known as Operation Mockingbird. So why then is this the conspiracy that comes up whenever you look into Operation Mockingbird? How did Mockingbird, whatever it was, get embroiled in this broader series of operations? Next, we'll consider the possibility that Operation Mockingbird was much different and much smaller in scale than most believe. Now back to the story. We discussed in our last episode how Deborah Davis's 1979 biography of Washington Post owner Catherine Graham was actually likely the first public document that explicitly revealed Operation Mockingbird and provided most of the alleged facts that are still associated with the program today. It was Davis who laid Operation Mockingbird at the feet of Frank Wisner, whom she claimed recruited Catherine Graham's husband, Phil Graham, to help run the project and bring fellow newspaper owners and media moguls into the fold. With Phil Graham at the helm, a number of other newspapers soon had journalists involved in Mockingbird. They ran pro-American, anti-communist articles that received nationwide circulation. Now, Davis's book was taken off the shelves shortly after publication due to a number of factual errors. Still, her account is likely the main reason we associate the name Operation Mockingbird with this Journalists as Assets operation today. It's never been outright stated that Davis's account of Mockingbird was wrong. But that could just be due to the fact that, at the time, the CIA had never admitted to having an Operation Mockingbird. But in 2007, declassified documents revealed the existence of another initiative called Project Mockingbird. Our second theory is that Operation Mockingbird is not the alleged widespread operation in which the CIA utilized journalists for intelligence-gathering purposes. Rather, Mockingbird, which was actually called Project Mockingbird, was a much smaller op that involved the surveillance of specific journalists in the interest of identifying their classified sources. This naturally raises the question, How did Mockingbird's real purpose get lost in translation? And as is the case with most of this story, the answer to that question is more than a little muddled due to decades of unsourced rumors and redacted files. But here's a summary of what we do know. The Church Committee, the congressional body formed with the purpose of investigating abuses of power in the CIA, published its declassified findings in 1976. The parts of the report that were available to the public were scathing, with nearly every page featuring some kind of bombshell revelation about CIA misdeeds. And one of the most explosive revelations to come out of the report was the exposure of Project Shamrock. For background, two years before the Church report was published, journalist Seymour Hersh had written a piece for the New York Times which exposed Operation Chaos. 
Chaos was an illegal program in which CIA operatives placed American citizens under surveillance without their knowledge. These citizens were all part of either left-leaning activist groups or the anti-war movement. The justification for the operation was to keep tabs on potential communist agitators within organizations comprised mostly of young people. Given that the CIA had, in the past, infiltrated similar organizations in communist countries with the intent of spreading pro-American propaganda, this operation actually makes sense in its own twisted way. If it worked abroad, why wouldn't it work in America? Chaos's exposure only contributed to the already damaged reputation of the CIA. And Hirsch's articles were a big part of what ultimately led to the formation of the Church Committee. The declassified Church Report unveiled a companion program to Chaos, Project Shamrock. Shamrock was also a surveillance program, but it had a much wider scope. Well, through Shamrock, the CIA, FBI, and the National Security Agency received daily intercepts from America's biggest telecommunications networks, containing all telegrams and phone call data that passed in and out of the United States. The program began in 1945 and actually predated the CIA itself. Reportedly, Shamrock operatives illegally logged 150,000 messages every month when the program was at its most powerful. The reveal of Shamrock was by far the most damning piece of information to come out of the church report particularly because the program had actually continued in secret, running for 30 years until 1975, when the CIA realized that they were about to be exposed. It was now public knowledge that the Central Intelligence Agency had actively sought to spy on American citizens that it thought may be a threat, and it had the technological infrastructure to do so. They could spy on just about anyone and they clearly didn't care much about due process getting in the way of that. Still, there was no reference to an Operation Mockingbird in the declassified church report in 1976 or in any of the writings in the Family Jewels document. For over 30 years, Mockingbird was a myth, an alleged program whose main source was Davis's unauthorized biography. Even after the book was pulled from the shelves, the name Operation Mockingbird stuck and was generally assigned by conspiracy theorists to the journalists as assets practice that Carl Bernstein had unveiled in 1977. But then, in 2007, the full compiled report on the CIA's family jewels was declassified and made available to the public on the CIA website. Among the nearly 700 pages of the report, was the first ever mention of an Operation Mockingbird in an official United States document. According to the declassified report, Project Mockingbird, a telephone intercept activity, was conducted between 12 March 1963 and 15 June 1963 and targeted two Washington-based newsmen who at the time, had been publishing news articles based on, and frequently quoting, classified materials of this agency and others, including top secret and special intelligence. Now, there's a notable distinction here. The document names Project Mockingbird 
while this conspiracy is concerned with Operation Mockingbird. But let's assume for now that these two are one and the same. The two journalists that were the target of Project Mockingbird were Robert S. Allen and Paul Scott. During the early 1960s, Allen and Scott co-authored a syndicated political column called The Allen Scott Report. By 1963, the column had published a number of scoops that contained classified intelligence, specifically dealing with the presence of nuclear missiles in Cuba before, during, and after the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. In the incident that likely put the two men on the CIA's radar, Paul Scott attended a 1963 press conference in which Secretary of State Robert McNamara announced that the USSR had dismantled or removed all of its missiles from the island country. McNamara made specific note of Paul Scott, whose pointed questions indicated a deeper knowledge of classified U.S. intelligence. McNamara shared his concerns with other top U.S. officials. Namely, then-director of the CIA, John McCone, and the U.S. Attorney General and brother of the President, Robert Kennedy. With McNamara and Kennedy's blessing, McCone authorized a wiretap of Paul Scott and his writing partner, Robert S. Allen. Allen and Scott were clearly getting their information from someone with security clearance, and the CIA wanted to find out who. In early March 1963, CIA operatives installed listening devices in the phones at Allen and Scott's homes and at their shared office. Over a period of just more than three months, the CIA learned the identities of Allen and Scott's various sources, including sitting senators and congressmen, staffers, and members of President Kennedy's and Vice President Johnson's staffs. The operation and the surveillance were officially concluded on June 15, 1963, It's unclear why they stopped, but we can imagine that the CIA, which at that point had identified dozens of sources, felt that they had plugged the proverbial leak. Ironically, the Alan Scott Report actually published an article in 1964 about U.S. intelligence agencies that were listening in on the calls of senators and White House staffers. It's more than likely that the two men knew, or at least suspected, that they were or had in the past been victim to a similar intrusion, but neither of them got concrete proof while they were alive. By 2007, when the Family Jewels report was released, Scott and Alan were dead. But Paul Scott's son Jim was alive well and quite shocked to see confirmation that the U.S. government had actually spied on his father. A 2013 Washington Post article by Ian Shapira documents Jim Scott's reaction to the news and how he has spent the ensuing years suing the CIA under the Freedom of Information Act to find out more. Jim actually recalls talking to a friend on the House telephone when he heard men speaking on the line, which you might recall from the opening of episode one. He also recalled a period when his father wouldn't take or make phone calls from their house, which would seem to more or less confirm that Scott and Alan knew they were being watched. Again, the really frustrating thing here is how, despite incredibly damning information concerning illegal actions against private American citizens, 
no one seemed to experience any kind of punishment or consequences for any of this. Well, the fact that most of this information was classified for decades is partly to blame for that. By the time the rest of the world even knew the truth about Project Mockingbird, the men who had ordered the operation were all dead. And yet, the CIA was and still is non-compliant with repeated attempts to gain more information about what they specifically learned from their three months of spying on Alan and Scott. Jim Scott has reached out to the CIA a number of times and argued that it doesn't make sense to continue classifying information if all of the relevant players have passed away. But the CIA has offered no new information about Project Mockingbird since the initial reveal of the family jewels in 2007, despite Jim's numerous attempts to get a clearer picture. In 2011, Jim broadened his scope beyond just the CIA. He tried to reach someone in the FBI who could help answer his questions. To his surprise, it worked. The FBI turned over a number of documents relevant to Paul Scott. While they likely didn't elaborate on the full scope or intent of Project Mockingbird, these new files did confirm Kennedy's and McNamara's involvement and approval, as well as a memo from J. Edgar Hoover, in which he declined to participate in the operation. It seems like someone would have taken that as a hint. If even J. Edgar Hoover doesn't want to get involved with your shady illegal project, maybe it's not the best course of action. So, it would seem that we can give this conspiracy theory a 10 out of 10. Whether or not there was a broader operation as described by Davis in her book, Project Mockingbird seems to have definitely existed. The CIA spied on Allen and Scott and faced no real consequences for it, despite the 2007 revelation. All of this raises another question as to what the real point of investigating these kinds of conspiracies is. After all, even after hundreds of pages detailing illegal operations were revealed, no one really paid for any of the crimes that the CIA committed. Except, maybe, some did. Next, we'll conclude by looking into the impact Mockingbird's revelation had on the rest of the country's history. Now, back to the story. We've discussed two clandestine and morally dubious operations undertaken by the Central Intelligence Agency. Both of them were very real, but only one of them was confirmed to exist under the codename Mockingbird. This leads to the question of how such a mix-up even occurred in the first place. Because even if Davis's account of Mockingbird was wrong, the CIA never commented on it or even denied its existence. This could have been one of the rare cases when the CIA could refute an accusation and actually be in the right. But it seems that by this point, the agency had learned that the best course of action was to just keep quiet and carry on. Even during the agency's lowest point in the mid-1970s, when many of its darkest secrets were laid bare, the leadership seemed to act under the assumption that nobody was ever really going to be punished for any of it. And that is yet another really crazy thing about this story. 
Despite the CIA's corrupt infiltration of the NSA, its use of journalists to spy on foreign countries, and its illegal surveillance of journalists on American soil under Project Mockingbird, there's been little produced intelligence to indicate that their efforts actually yielded a tangible result. It would seem that the agency was, in a sense, not performing these actions because they were an effective and necessary strategy to combat communism. They were doing it because they knew they could get away with it, and that even if they were exposed, they'd receive a slap on the wrist and face no real repercussions. But that's not what some pundits would have you believe. Our final theory, which is more of a conclusion, is that the exposure of Project Mockingbird and the rest of the CIA's family jewels had a drastically negative impact on the agency's intelligence capabilities and essentially crippled it for decades. The single biggest catalyst for this particular theory is the September 11th terrorist attacks. On the very day of the attacks, a number of right-leaning news outlets were actually bold enough to blame the tragedy on Frank Church and the Church Committee. The common line was that the Church Committee had robbed the CIA of its teeth in the fight against America's enemies, and thus the agency had been ill-equipped to interpret intelligence about the attack before it happened. Let's unpack that bold claim with what we know about the aftermath of the Church Committee. The main conclusion reached in 1976, after the Church Committee published its findings, was that the CIA was too deeply linked to the executive branch. As such, the agency was susceptible to being used as a political tool by the president's administration. This was made abundantly clear by the fact that Richard Nixon had directed the CIA to interfere with the FBI's investigation into the Watergate scandal. After the committee's report, the CIA was put under a higher level of legislative oversight, with a number of high-ranking operatives being put into the new position of having to answer to Congress. This was naturally a major shift in the way that the agency operated. Since its inception in 1947, the CIA had successfully used its broad, poorly defined jurisdiction to justify all kinds of illegal and controversial actions. As neither a law enforcement nor a diplomatic agency, the CIA was not held back by the typical rules of engagement, and thus could make up its own rules as it went along. But after 1976, CIA officials were forced to deliver briefs on certain operations. They were given a broad mandate to refrain from dealing in any kind of action or operation that might be deemed controversial. If you've been paying attention up to this point, you can imagine that such a directive would effectively put an end to every single CIA operation. There was a goal for a time of keeping the CIA out of its usual playground of instigating foreign coups or making lucrative deals with drug kingpins in order to further American interests abroad. And yes, while it was surely something of a headache for these CIA officers to actually have to be held accountable for their actions, Let's take a look at what the agency got up to in the decades between the Church Committee and the September 11th attacks. Watergate ruined the Republican Party in the eyes of the American people for a time. For the remainder of the 1970s, Democrats held the majority in both the House of Representatives and the Senate. 
It was the Democratic Congress that initiated and enforced these oversights to the CIA. But with the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980, the political pendulum swung back and put the Senate firmly under Republican control for nearly a full decade. The Iran-Contra affair occurred during this period. President Reagan told Congress that the CIA was working in El Salvador to stop weapon shipments to Nicaraguan rebels. In reality, the agency was actively arming these rebels in the hopes that they would overthrow the current Nicaraguan regime. The revolutions of 1989 led to the USSR collapse, which left the CIA in a bizarre position. It had been created initially to fight the Cold War through espionage, and now its key enemy had been dismantled. But luckily, by 1989, the CIA had its hands in so many clandestine operations across the world that it was not lacking for new enemies. Though the Russia they'd love to hate was no more, they still had plenty of other parts of the world like China, Indonesia, Colombia, and Nicaragua to meddle with. All in all, the CIA that endured through the 1980s and 1990s was as widespread as the agency had ever been, but at the same time seemed to be woefully ineffectual at obtaining, interpreting, and acting on actual intelligence. To name just some examples. Well, during the Gulf War, which took place in Iraq in the early 1990s, the CIA drastically underestimated Iraq's military capabilities, failed to predict the scope of the invasion of Kuwait, and accidentally broadcast to the Iraqi military the names and locations of several of their operatives in the region. After spending years funneling money to the Taliban during the Cold War and the Gulf War, the CIA found itself squaring off with a radical organization throughout the 1990s. The Taliban was responsible for an attack on CIA headquarters in 1993 and the World Trade Center bombing of 1993. In 1995, during the Bosnian War, the CIA inadvertently caused the bombing of a Chinese embassy after it printed the wrong coordinates for a tactical strike. And that's just a handful of chaotic, deadly blunders that the agency caused in the years leading up to September 11, 2001. Now, this may all be a part of a brilliant ruse. When the CIA fails, it tends to do so very publicly. But naturally, the nature of a preventative intelligence agency is that if it's doing its job, you're never seeing results because a successful mission is one that the public doesn't even know about. We're talking about all of the CIA's very public shortcomings and failures. Well, there seem to be very few successes, and that may be by design. You can't fear an agency if you don't even know what it's really capable of besides incompetence. While the agency would seem to stumble in the public spotlight, it's very possible that they're marking up a much more impressive success rate behind the scenes. In that sense, it would seem that the claim that Mockingbird and the other operations that were exposed in the 1970s had something to do with the CIA's failure to predict or prevent the September 11th attacks would be a 1 out of 10. If the Church Committee is to be blamed for anything, it's for not coming down harder on the agency. Despite the embarrassment at having the family jewels and other operations exposed, 
the CIA generally went about like everything was normal in the ensuing decades. Because no one ever really got punished for any of the scandalous actions that were exposed in the 70s, the operatives of the agency seemed to have no problem ignoring congressional oversight and continuing on with business as usual. It remained the same agency, beholden to the same lack of oversight and gross mistakes that had defined it during the previous 30 years. Controversial as it may be to say, the CIA likely benefited from the fallout of 9-11. The CIA was much more integrated into the executive branch following the September 11th attacks. Once again, the agency was more beholden to the direct wants of the commander-in-chief than it was to a congressional body. It was CIA intelligence that directly led to the justification for the 2003 invasion of Iraq. And in the wake of the attacks, the Department of Homeland Security was formed and the Patriot Act was passed. The legislation saw widespread surveillance of American citizens and people abroad in the interest of preventing terrorism. Project Mockingbird, the one that saw the CIA illegally spy on American journalists, would seem to be alive and well today. More, the government doesn't even need to hide it. Phone tapping and computer monitoring is just something that has generally been deemed acceptable, a price one pays for living in modern society. According to Deborah Davis, Mockingbird was at its height during the 1950s when TV was a new invention and newspapers held sway over televised news as the main source of public information. But today, when agenda-driven media can say whatever it wants under the guise of patriotism, you have to wonder. Does the CIA even need such a program? In this day and age, it seems like much of mainstream media has no problem spreading propaganda all on its own. Though the CIA may have closed the file decades ago, it seems that the legacy of Mockingbird will continue to live on. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back Wednesday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Conspiracy Theories, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskind. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. This episode was written by Colin McLaughlin and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy.